Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Welcome everyone to this week's Core Concepts, brought to you by the EM Guidewire team at Carolina's Medical Center Emergency Medicine Group. Today, you have myself, Sean Fox, and Dr. Craig London. This week's installment is sponsored by Radial Head Dislocations. Radial Head Dislocations, what pops in your mind when you're starting to swing your child by the arms. But don't stop, because you know how to fix this. Radial Head Dislocations. I do like Radial Head Dislocations because they make you feel like Mr. Miyagi being able to fix somebody with your bare hands. It's really cool. Now let's get on with the show. This week, we're going to cover a very important topic. It is, however, grim and challenging to discuss and challenging to certainly evaluate and therefore even more important for us to dive into today. We're going to talk about pediatric non-accidental trauma or NAT. And to do so, we are honored to have two guests joining us in the studio. Dr. Simone Lawson, who is actually a former graduate of the fellowship program here at Carolina's Medical Center and is currently undergoing another fellowship at Children's National Medical Center in D.C. Why? Because she's a glutton for punishment or just really thirsty for knowledge. Yes, I think that's it. In addition to Dr. Lawson, we have the esteemed Dr. Pat Morgan, who is the medical director of the Child Protective Team at Levine Children's Hospital here at Carolina's Medical Center and the Pediatric Resource Center at Pat's Place Child Advocacy Center here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Ladies, it is my honor and my uh, privilege to have you both here to help us cover this topic, and uh, welcome to EM Guidewire. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having us. Nationally, pediatric patients account for a significant proportion of ED visits, and most of the children are headed to general emergency departments, not specific pediatric departments. So listeners, this applies to all of us that are working and caring for children all across the country, regardless of whether you have um, ready access to child life specialists and bubbles and all the stickers, or you are working in a limited access um, area and seeing all comers of all ages. You're right. This is a, it's a pretty grim topic, but it's an important one. Realizing a child has been abused has to be one of the more emotionally taxing parts of being a pediatrician. But hopefully by the end of this segment, listeners will feel more confident in, with dealing with cases of potential abuse. I agree, Simone. I, I think it's important for ED providers to know that they are in a very unique position to help kids stay safe. Without early identification and intervention, it's estimated that about one in three children may experience subsequent abuse or neglect. Dr. Morgan, I think I have a pretty good understanding of what child abuse and non-accidental trauma are, but I'm not totally sure by what you mean when you say neglect. Well, Craig, think of child maltreatment as the overarching umbrella. And under that umbrella, you have neglect and abuse. There are several different types of neglect, and they include educational, psychological, emotional, medical neglect, 
and supervisory neglect. Under abuse, there are several types of abuse as well. They include physical abuse, sexual abuse, as well as emotional abuse and medical child abuse. Didn't we used to call that Munchausen's by proxy? Yes, medical child abuse was formerly called Munchausen syndrome by proxy. It involves a caretaker either fabricating or causing a child's illness. It's very complex and not nearly as common as other forms of child maltreatment. Neglect is by far more common than any other forms of maltreatment, but it can be pretty difficult to evaluate and manage. Basically, neglect is a failure to meet the child's most basic needs, whether that be food, shelter, supervision, medical care, or love or nurturance. About two-thirds of all maltreatment cases are actually due to neglect, while physical abuse makes up about 16% of maltreatment cases and is sometimes the most recognizable form of child maltreatment. Whenever I have a shift in the Peds Emergency Department, everyone has a cold or gastro, and then I do too a couple days later. But when I do board prep questions, it seems like a lot of questions center around child abuse. How common does NAT really present to the emergency department? Valid point. We do see our fair share of snotty noses and PO challenges, but it's really important to remember that pediatric emergency medicine isn't just about diagnosing viruses. Never say it's just a virus. (laughs) (laughs) Abuse is more common than you'd probably expect. Anywhere from 2 to 10% of children presenting to the ED are victims of abuse or neglect. So, Craig, if you're working a 10-hour shift and you only see one patient an hour... There's a good chance I've seen a kid who's been abused or neglected, huh? Oh, man. Exactly. In fact, my past four shifts, I've seen a child who came in um, who was obviously abused and probably will be neurologically devastated uh, for the rest of his life. And I also saw another child that had a simple fracture that ended up probably being related to abuse as well. The spectrum is vast and it's really challenging to sort through these children. It's scary and patients won't check in advertising that they've been abused. They are um, usually going to present with normal complaints that it might actually be related to a virus, but there might be other clues or signs or symptoms that we have to be attentive to. Those are all great points, Sean. Uh, In fact, approximately 20 to 30% of children who died from abuse had actually been seen previously by a medical provider for findings that were caused by abuse before the abuse was finally diagnosed. Well, that's disheartening. So if I'm gonna be sensitive for these presentations, are there clues I can look for in kids? that are presenting with complaints like this? That's a really great question. I find it helpful to be aware of what we call sentinel injuries. These can help you identify cases of possible abuse. So sentinel injuries are injuries which may be minor, but they don't have a plausible explanation. This could be a total lack of explanation, so they're unexplained, or the explanation just doesn't make sense. These injuries are oftentimes the precursor to ongoing abuse and can include bruising, skin findings, intraoral injuries such as a torn frenulum, and other injuries. Okay, Dr. London, development pop quiz. No, no. (laughs) This won't be too painful. When would you expect a child to begin rolling over? I'm going to go with 4.5 months. (laughs) Very exact and very good call. Infants can usually roll from their tummy over to their back at about four months, and then from their back to their tummy around five months or so. 
So what about to sit unassisted? Oh, I definitely remember that one from my pediatric shelf exam. That's about six months. Correct. Now, what about what we call cruising? And that's when a child kind of pulls themselves up to standing and kind of shuffles along and takes steps while they're holding on to whatever they pulled up against, like a chair or a coffee table. Well, I know my friend's kid started to walk when he was about a year old, so I'm going to go with nine or ten months. Good logic. Cruising starts usually around about nine months. So now that you've aced that pop quiz, how would you feel about a four-week-old being brought in because she has a bruise on her forehead after she rolled off the changing table? Well, I probably would have thought that a fall is a logical reason to have a bruise, but it doesn't really make sense that a four-week-old would be able to roll over on their own. Exactly. So that bruise would be considered a sentinel injury because the explanation is not plausible. So in that case, your suspicion for abuse should go up. And really, any bruising in an infant or child who cannot cruise is suspicious, regardless of where the bruising is located. Now, once kids start moving on their own, bruising doesn't necessarily raise concern for abuse unless it's in a high suspicion part of the body. So we all know that toddlers, they may fall a lot, but normal bruising for a child who's toddling around should really be on low suspicion body parts, such as bony surfaces that would take the impact if they fall. So bruising on the knees and shins, which are bony surfaces, isn't really alarming, but bruising on the sides of the face, the back of the body, the buttocks, the thighs, or abdomen are high suspicion areas and should really make you think twice about possible physical abuse. Besides the areas you mentioned, are there any other areas where bruising would make me worry a little bit more? There might be a mnemonic for that. Remember, 10-4, bruising on the torso, ears, or neck of a child that's less than four years old is always concerning. And a child less than four months should never have any bruising of any sort anywhere. Yeah, so 10-4 is really easy to remember, but Sean, did you know that they expanded 10-4 to 10-4 faces P? So what you're saying is since you trained here, you've left me and learned more? I don't know that I... It's unbelievable, but it happened. Okay, well tell me some more about it. <laughs> yeah, It is kind of a mouthful, but it's not too much to remember. The 10-4 part is just the same, and then they added the faces P to go through other sites of concerning bruising, which increases our sensitivity for identifying abuse. F is for frenulum, A is for the auricular area, C is for the cheek, I is for the eyelid, and S is for sclera. So basically any bruising anywhere on the face is no good. And don't forget the P is for pattern. So the shape of the bruise can really be helpful and provide key information. If there's a bruise that is patterned, looks like an object, that concerns me because that means the child may have been intentionally hit with that object. Some kids might have loop marks from being whipped with cords or belts, and I've seen children with bruises in the shape of a handprint from being slapped, so patterns, definitely a red flag. Bite marks are concerning too. Believe it or not, there are children who've been bitten by adults, and one of the worst adult bite cases that I had on a child was a 15-month-old who had 23 bite marks, got admitted to the hospital for IV antibiotics for uh, super-infected bite marks, and all I had to do was measure three of the bite marks, measure the intracanine distance, so that's really helpful. The intracanine distance 
should be less than 2.5 centimeters when it relates to a child. So if it's larger than that, we know that it's an older child, teenager, or an adult. In that case of the 23 bite marks, they actually found out it was the mother who decided to bite her child because he bit her. That's really disturbing. I'm going to put the 10-4 faces P on my list of mnemonics to remember, but it only seems to involve bruising. Are there any other injuries that should make me worry about possible child abuse? Good question. As you know, in the ED, we see our fair share of fractures, but not all skeletal injuries can be blamed just on the monkey bars. Yes, Simone, you're right. Skeletal injuries are actually the second most common presentation for physical abuse. Similar to bruising, there are categories of fractures that we find to be very concerning. So we just talked about the kids who, if they're not cruising, they don't really bruise. Similarly, infants who are otherwise healthy and aren't ambulatory, they really shouldn't have a fracture without an adequate explanation of trauma. Even if a child is walking, if they're young and have a long bone fracture, that should raise some concern. Yeah, with the exception of a toddler's fracture, long bone fractures in an infant or a toddler usually aren't okay. And if you can't get a good explanation of how the fracture actually occurred, that's really not okay. You know what else isn't okay? Rib fractures, especially posterior ones. Remember those ribs are normally very pliable and flexible, so it takes a fair amount of force to break them in a young child. Craig, I'm sure you have a method for systematically reviewing chest x-rays, but obviously there's a shameless plug here. For any of you listeners out there that need a review of your very own, our Dr. Gibbs has created an x-ray series that's also available on our EM Guidewire site that you can review. I do have a system. Um, I usually just go through the ABCs. Great method. B stands for, obviously, bones. So even if you're looking for pneumonia, be sure that you're looking at those ribs because, again, the child may have presented for a cough. And you know what makes parents or guardians somewhat frustrated is when that cough just won't let them sleep at night because the kid keeps coughing and coughing and waking them up. And sometimes the best way to make them go to sleep is just to give them a really hard squeeze. And when that happens, sometimes we'll fracture those ribs. So while the kid came in for a runny nose and a cough, your x-ray actually may be the finding that will help discern the child is being actually abused because they have now a fracture that you're able to pick up on. And I got to be honest, I definitely have not looked for rib fractures on every single pediatric plane film I've ordered. That makes at least two of us. You really have to just take a mental pause and look at the entire x-ray, which is honestly really hard in the ED when you're running through patients on a busy shift. What about shaken baby syndrome? That's what I automatically think of when I hear of non-accidental trauma. Yes, uh, shaken baby syndrome. We actually now call that abusive head trauma, and it's really important for us to take a moment to talk about that. It is the leading cause of death in cases of physical abuse, and sometimes there's really no external evidence of trauma at all, but there are certain patterns of intracranial and ocular injury which help us make that diagnosis. Those injuries could include cerebral bleeds such as subdurals, uh, cerebral edema, infarction, or retinal findings such as retinal hemorrhages that involve multiple layers of the retina or retinoschisis, which is actually splitting of the retinal layers due to trauma. And this is obviously an, another really important reason uh, and an example of why it's important for us to keep a broad differential for the child who presents as being fussy or behaving differently or with an overtly altered mental status as nearly a third of those cases will actually be missed initially as being related to non-accidental trauma. 
I have a question, y'all. Do you see intra-abdominal trauma injuries very often with non-accidental trauma? That's a good question. Uh, serious intra-abdominal injuries are less common, but they're actually the second leading cause of death from abuse. Abusive intra-abdominal injuries are much more common in the toddler age. Of course, bruising on the abdomen would make you suspect trauma, but you're only gonna see this in less than 20% of the cases. Most of the time, you're gonna be dealing with a lot of non-specific signs and symptoms like irritability, lethargy, vomiting, poor feeding, abdominal distension, discomfort, they may even just have frank peritonitis on exam. Again, remember that we're talking about non-accidental trauma, but the overarching subject is still trauma. So we should evaluate all of these patients as if they've been traumatized as you would if they were involved in a motor vehicle collision. The young child certainly is more challenging to evaluate when we're dealing with the trauma overall because they can hide a lot of their findings and their symptoms and the abdomen is probably the, the most challenging um, area to evaluate. The gold standard for the diagnosis of intra-abdominal trauma would be the CT scan of the abdomen, but checking LFTs and even a lipase can help us with our initial screening for occult injury for those children that have absolutely no external signs of trauma and no tenderness. You're absolutely right, Dr. Fox. And, and here at Levine Children's Hospital, if there is a concern for abuse, we're usually gonna admit those children, those infants and those children for a thorough evaluation, which would include those labs you just mentioned. What we're also going to do is a skeletal survey, which is a specific protocol, it includes about 21 separate images. So it's not just doing a baby gram. And although each hospital has a different procedure, some hospitals may do this workup in the emergency department and others may admit the children like we do. But no matter what, as physicians, especially here in North Carolina, everyone is a mandated reporter. But as physicians and medical providers, we are held to the highest standard. And if you have a concern or a suspicion, that's all it takes. It has to be reported to DSS. Yes, get your social workers involved early. And even if you're going to refer these patients to a pediatric hospital, you still need to initiate a report if you're the first provider taking care of this child. Again, getting your social worker involved early is going to be very helpful. Uh, I think an important point to really drive home is that a good skin exam on every kid you see is going to be invaluable. This is why we harp on getting kids in gowns so much. And you know, don't worry about parents being annoyed that you want to put their child in a gown. There have actually been studies about this, and it was what we call a top-toe exam, where you examined the patients from the tops of their heads to the tips of their toes, and parents really didn't mind that happening at all. So I actually have a simple yet complex question Often the conversations that are had between providers and families of children that we're evaluating for potential non-accidental trauma, NAT, can be laden with a lot of anxiety both uh, on both fronts, parents and providers alike. How do you navigate those potential challenging conversations? Yeah, I have to say that's the part I dread, well, second most. First is that the child's hurt, but second is now I have to address it with this family. Um, I think if I had it in my history, I try to get a good idea of what other adults are around the child. So is the child in daycare? Is there a nanny that comes? Um, are they with family members? And then I'm pretty honest. I explain to the parents that, look, my job here is to make sure that your child is safe. That is my only job. 
and there are a couple of bruises that are a bit concerning to me because it, we haven't figured out a good reason why they have this bruise. And I, I open up the conversation with that to say, I am here to make sure that your child is safe. We're going to do a little bit more of an investigation. And then I exit the room and I talk to social work and kind of come up with a game plan of the best way to, to approach it afterward. No, that sounds great, Dr. Lawson. I, I agree. I tend to be pretty upfront. I don't usually introduce myself as a child abuse pediatrician, but I will tell them that I'm a pediatrician and I get involved in cases when there are certain findings and certain injuries. And that as being a pediatrician, first and foremost, we want to make sure that there aren't any medical conditions or problems. And so we're going to do some more tests. But if in that evaluation we don't really have a finding or an explanation for these injuries or the findings on their exam, that we'd be concerned about trauma. And it's not to accuse anyone, but that we're on the same page with just to make sure that your baby is safe and healthy. And I just explain, them, explain that process to them. And usually um, it's received pretty well. If you start with, we're doing this for the best of your, your baby. And then I think that if there are harder discussions that need to happen, if you have social work that can assist with that, that that's helpful as well. And that another thing that's helpful is to say that it's simply our responsibility and by law we have to report any injury or finding that's concerning. That leads me actually to another question. Is there, in your experience, any documentation tips or, more importantly, pitfalls things that I've written in my chart that actually have made your job harder or potentially make the legal proceedings that go further more complicated? That is a really good question, Dr. Fox. And um, I think some of the challenges uh, from ED documentation would be when you document that there's no concern or no suspicion for abuse, and then we either have to have a harder discussion with the family or our partner agencies, such as Child Protective Services or law enforcement, to sort of have them understand why there is this concern or suspicion. And so I think that um, unless you are 100% certain, and it's very challenging to be 100% certain in these instances, that I would really avoid no suspicion for abuse unless you had a really consistent history and uh, the mechanism of injury was consistent with that history. Aside from that, you can put moderators on it, such as low or moderate or high suspicion of abuse. But really, if you're getting to the point where you're saying you have no suspicion, I would be really clear. Okay, super helpful. Dr. Morgan, as our child maltreatment expert, is there anything else you would like our listeners to know? I think this has really been a pretty comprehensive review for ED providers, and I really wanna thank you for including me. Remember that you're probably not going to identify abuse unless you're looking for it, and and that's important for anyone who's caring for children to keep in mind. What I like to remind folks is that when you see an infant or child and they come in with an injury, that abuse really has to be somewhere on your differential. And then you can move abuse up the differential, down the differential, or off your list entirely based on your evaluation, but the point is to think about it, and that's how we don't miss those cases. When we don't think about it, we leave that infant or that child in a situation where they can return to our EDs more severely injured or worse. And of course, as Dr. Lawson said, if you suspect abuse, you don't worry about hurting anyone's feelings. If you see something, all you have to do is have that suspicion, and if it makes you wonder if abuse is the potential cause, try to see if there's a logical explanation. 
But if you're not sure, ask for help. Ask someone from your child's hospital's child protection team or your local child abuse medical provider. We are definitely here to help in those cases. Thanks. This has been really super helpful. Dr. Morgan and Dr. Lawson, thanks for sharing some of your core concepts for identifying non-accidental trauma in the emergency department. I'll definitely be sure to make a top-toe assessment part of my regular exam and remember that kids don't cruise, rarely bruise. Also, 10-4 with the faces P thrown in. And of course, that if I see something, I should always say something. Thank you, gang. This has been an excellent uh, conversation. I really appreciate your expertise and insight, and we hopefully will utilize this information to the benefit of all of our uh, children in our country. So thanks again. This is EM Guidewire from the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studios here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today. Seems he out. <laughs> Dr. Patty Pat for filling my knowledge gap. <laughs> when I assess patients, it won't be whack. That's all I got to say about that. That was recording, right? That's why I went into medicine. We have that. <laughs>